it's tempting when you were, were looking at the book of Acts to get a mindset or have an idea that the first believers were somehow perfect, uh, that the first church was somehow perfect. And we can kind of, we're tempted to overanalyze what's happening here and think, okay, we want to do exactly what they're doing. Um, and, and if we go to that extreme, what can happen is we can get confused, we can get disappointed, because the truth is it's, sometimes it's difficult to know exactly what it looked like in the early church when they practiced these things. So we, so much, we, do, we don't want to look at the early church and say, okay, that was the perfect church. That, that would be a mistake. But we do want to look at the early church and see it as a model church. This is the church that Jesus planted. This is the church that the Holy Spirit birthed into existence. And so how they did things are, are, are things that we want to, to learn from. And especially the fact that these guys were a, a group of people that were really, I mean, just radically devoted to God. When we pick it up in verse 42, it says, And they continued steadfastly. And the they that's referred to is, of course, these 3,000 who just got saved. If you remember from what we looked at earlier in Acts chapter 2, uh, you have so far what we've seen so far in the book of Acts is uh, Jesus with his apostles uh, after he's resurrected from the dead. There's this 40 days where Jesus is instructing his apostles. He tells them to wait in Jerusalem until they're filled with, uh, with endure with power from on high by the Holy Spirit. Then he ascends to heaven right before their eyes and they're kind of blown away by this. And so in obedience to him, they wait in Jerusalem. It's the 12 apostles or 11 apostles plus uh, over 100 other people who are together, waiting together, praying together for about 10 days. The day of Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit falls. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon these guys, they speak in languages they couldn't speak, uh, they couldn't know uh, naturally. Uh, it draws a crowd. And then Peter, preaching to the crowd, preaches Jesus, we talked about last time. He just focuses his message not so much on the manifestation that was going on, but how that manifestation leads to the Jesus who sent his spirit. And so he, they preach Jesus. And when Peter preaches Jesus and calls them to respond to him, um, 3,000 respond. 3,000 in one day respond. So the church goes from 120 to 3,120 in one day. Pretty awesome. And these people, it wasn't just like they had this altar call or there was a crusade and everyone came forward and they filled up little cards. You're talking about people whose lives were instantly and radically changed. And it's these that are referred to when it says in verse 42, and they continued steadfastly. These 3,120 believers. Now, what I want to talk about tonight, really, we want to see in this last section of chapter 2, is just how the early church was the devoted church. How they were a church that, not perfect, but devoted. There was a real commitment to the God who had saved them that really sets the standard or the norm for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It says they continued steadfastly, and that phrase, it's one word in the Greek, and it means to pursue with diligence. And it has this idea that these guys were, were really intentionally devoted to worship. They really were, this wasn't just kind of a casual thing that they did, they came once a week on a Sunday, or you know, it was like you know, when they really had a personal felt need, they were committed to worshiping this Jesus. And there's four things that Luke lists that they were continuing steadfastly in. He lists the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And, and I believe because of the message that Peter preached 
And because we saw earlier in chapter 1 that, that, that the whole teaching of the apostles was about Jesus, that all these things really have their focus in Jesus. And, and I think that's, that is, is confirmed by the fact that we look at the letters that, that Peter wrote or the letters that Paul eventually will write. All those have their focus on Jesus. The, the letters that John wrote all have their focus on Jesus. And so this is how they were devoted to their worship. It says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And we learned a few weeks ago how the apostles' doctrine was really taking the Old Testament truths and interpreting them and applying them through the person and work of Jesus. So they looked at what the Old Testament taught, the scriptures, because they, they knew that Jesus believed the authority of scripture. They also believed the authority and inerrancy of scripture. And so they taught the scripture, but from the viewpoint of how Jesus is the fulfillment of it, how Jesus is, is the one who um, is the answer to all their questions from the scripture. And so the apostles' doctrine would simply be what the apostles were teaching. They were teaching about Jesus. So these guys, this group of 3,000 believers, they were devoted to learn about Jesus. Pretty simple. It's what we ought to be. It's the, in a sense, you might say it's the first step that we're devoted. We want to learn more about this Jesus who saved us. I want to know who he is and what he's like. I want to know what he actually taught, what he requires of me, what he's promised to me. I want to know about this Jesus. That's the apostles' doctrine. And the good news for us is we have the apostles' doctrine. It's called the New Testament. That's exactly what the New Testament is. It's the Apostles' Doctrine. So we want to stay steadfastly in that. This is also why when we're teaching the Old Testament, like Genesis says we're doing now, we want to teach it from the viewpoint of how does Jesus fulfill this? How does Jesus, uh, how's, how does the scripture point to Jesus? So they continue steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. They wanted to learn about Jesus, but also it says, and fellowship. This is a really big word. You might have heard people say this word in Greek, koinonia. It's a, it's a really... It's got a lot of ideas connected to it. A simplest way to say this is it's talking about this. It has the idea of sharing. You know, so we have this. You've heard the term fellowship used like uh, if somebody gets to a certain position in a certain profession, they, they're in part of a fellowship. Or if they're at a certain position at a university, they're in a fellowship. And it basically means they share something. They're, shared in a, they're sharing a position. Well, when we talk about fellowship as believers, we're talking about sharing a life that we have together in Christ. He's our source of life. He is life. We share that in common. We have a common brotherhood. So fellowship is sharing our life together. That We have this common bond that is different than, than, than what we might have with unbelievers. Now we can have friendships with unbelievers. We can have that. We can have relationships with unbelievers. A lot of us have family members that don't, don't believe in Jesus yet. And we love them. We have a relationship with them. But we don't have this kind of fellowship with them. We can only have this kind of fellowship with people who also believe in Jesus because only people who believe in Jesus have the life that comes from Jesus. Like we have life that comes from Jesus. And so they were having this shared life together and they knew that. They honored that. They wanted to share in that together. It says also they were continuing steadfastly in the breaking of bread. Now Luke, who wrote Acts and of course the Gospel of Luke, he's the only one who uses this phrase, breaking of bread. He uses it both in Luke and in the book of Acts. And he uses it sometimes to refer to what we call communion, as in the remembering the bread and the wine, sort of like the, the adoption of this Passover feast. But he also uses it in, in the sense of just having a common meal together, just sharing a meal together. And most historians believe that's because this is how they commit, this is how they did practice communion in the early church. It was what they, what call, they called a love feast. 
And so basically they would come together for a communal meal. They were planning to eat a, a, a whole meal together, and they would start off that meal by having a common uh, loaf of bread that they would break in the name of the Lord as a remembrance of his broken body. They'd pass it around. A common cup, remembering the spilt blood of the Lord, and they would take a drink of it in remembrance of the, of the spilled blood of Christ um, that, that, that washes away our sin. And then they would feast on the rest of the stuff. This is what they kind of did when they got together. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But there's this reality that it has to do with, as, it, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, us remembering the Lord, remembering what he's done for, them, for, for us. As Jesus even said in the book of Matthew, do, do this in remembrance of me. So, so they were devoted to, or they were continuing steadfastly in remembering the suffering, or you might even say the sufficiency of what Jesus has done, the sufficiency of the suffering. So they were devoted to that. Just let's, let's have this kind of tangible reminder that what Jesus did for us was enough. And then it says, and they were also continued steadfastly, of course, in prayers. Now we're going to see as we go through Acts that often when, the, when we have recorded prayers, they're praying to the Lord. And it's a, it's a really uh, pretty clearly that they are, it's a reference to the Lord Jesus. They were actually praying to the Lord Jesus often. And so there's this idea that they're seeking help from Jesus. They're wanting to see him move his church forward. All right, God, you see these people are persecuting us. You got to give us more boldness and you got to give us the strength to move on. All right, Lord, you see that we have this lack. You have to intervene. Lord, you see that they're coming against this guy. Give us the grace to get, help him escape from the city. And so they were constantly seeking God for his help, seeking the Lord Jesus for his help. So this is what I'm talking about as far as them being devoted to worship. Uh, the worship of God, they were practicing the worship of God very, very diligently. It was like they were committed to saying, look, we really want to seek him. We want to know him. We want to learn about him. We want to share the life we have in him. Uh, we want to remember him. We really want to be pursuing him. And we'll see in a minute, this is something they didn't just do once a week. They continue to do this daily. This is a daily practice. Now, it's, there's therefore a connection to what we see happening in verse 43. Because in verse 43, Luke says, Then fear came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. Now, here, here they are, and the worship of God is, is being practiced diligently. And so it really shouldn't surprise us that the presence of God is going to be experienced powerfully. There is a connection between these two. Specifically, when we see the first part of verse 43, this is something I think that we should expect to experience every time we seek God. It says, the fear of God came upon every soul. Now, when you see that, don't think to yourself this fear of judgment, this trembling of like, oh no, God's here, what's going to happen? I'm going to die, I'm going to die. This is not a reference to a fear of judgment. The Bible says perfect love casts out that fear. This is talking about a humble reverence, a recognition that we are in the presence of all mighty God. Now we know in our heads, don't we as believers, we know in our heads God's omnipresent. So we're always sort of in that sense in his presence. But this is the idea of we're pursuing the person of God. We're, we're, we're practically devoted to our worship of God. And as we do that, as we draw near to God, there's a sense of his presence. There's a sense of his holiness. And that humbles us. And it causes us to fear. It causes us to be reverent. And so this is something I think we need to recognize that this is a 
you might say this is a characteristic of a spirit-filled church. This is a characteristic of a church that is where, where the, the presence of God is there. And that is there's that sense that, man, we are worshiping and seeking a holy God and we should do so with reverence. Now, that's one of the things that, if we're probably all honest, is that there's a, an increasing lack of in our modern church services is a reverence towards God. Now, don't confuse reverence with formality. Those are two different things. Formality has to do with, okay, our, our liturgy, our service has to look a certain way. And that can happen in all kinds of traditions, including ours, okay? I'm not talking about formality, like, okay, we want to look serious or we want to make sure we do this thing in a certain way. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying no one ever laughs. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where we don't really seem to care about what God is doing at the moment. We don't seem to be engaging with God. We're kind of there and we're only focused on the horizontal. Who's here? What's, what are the aesthetics like? What's the preaching like? What's the music like? What's the coffee like? You know what I'm saying? And so we're focused on the horizontal when really when we're gathered together, as these guys were, they were gathered together as this devoted church wanting to worship God. They were focused on the vertical. Lord, you, it's just about you. You're the risen Christ. You're alive and we want to draw close to you. That's what I'm talking about. That sense of, uh, of longing after him. And then as we see him or as we are remembering who he is, as he's revealing himself to us afresh, there should be that fear. We're going to see later on in the book of Acts where it's describing what's going on uh, among believers. And it says they continued in the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And so it's like the sense of as they were drawing near to God, they were aware of their own unworthiness, more and more aware of their own unworthiness, but also more and more aware of the sufficiency of Christ. And the Holy Spirit was comforting them, but Jesus is enough, Jesus is enough, Jesus is enough. And, and I can completely and utterly relate to that. The, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I am aware of how far I fall short, how small I am, how little I bring to the table, really nothing, and how great God is. And there's a, there's a reverence, there's a, there's a fear, sometimes even a trembling that comes with that. This is what we're talking about. Now, also, though, what it says, and we don't want to dismiss this or make light of this, it says, and also many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, wonders and signs are miraculous things. There were, they were, they were things happening, supernatural things happening that were obviously from God. Now, <clears throat> there's a connection between these things. I think there's a reality that when God is moving supernaturally, one of the ways we know that it's God that's moving, it's not a counterfeit thing, is there is that reverence. There's that fear of God and that comfort of the Holy Spirit. Again, so often what we see in, in atmospheres where we're maybe trying to always pursue the supernatural in the sense of we're always trying to pursue signs and wonders, often what happens, it's a carnal atmosphere. Woohoo, this is going to be awesome. God's going to do great stuff. Or, or, yeah, that was so exciting, and it's just about that. Now, trust me, it's, gonna be, it's exciting when God does a miracle. It's a blessing. I'm not, I'm not denying that. What I'm saying is, is that what you see happen in the early church was this fear coming upon every soul and signs and wonders being done. Now, here's what we know. Here's what we want to notice. Luke makes it clear that not just that signs and wonders were done, but they're being done through the apostles. This is important. 
Because as the Bible, uh, or the book of Mark ends, it says this at the end of the book of Mark, and they, speaking of the uh, disciples specifically, they went out and preached everywhere. Notice the Lord working with them and confirming the word through what? Accompanying signs. That's the pattern you see in the New Testament. The gospel is preached God by the apostles. The word is, is brought forth. The authority of the word is brought forth and it's confirmed by what? Accompanying signs and wonders. Now here's, here's the reality. When it comes to this, the worship of God being practically uh, uh, or, or being practiced diligently, we have control over that to, to a degree. And what I mean by that, we, we can choose to pursue these things. We can choose to say, I want to learn about Jesus, share in the life of Jesus, remember the sufficiency of Jesus, seek help from Jesus. We can do that both individually and corporately. We have a choice to make. We can do that. But when it comes to, when it comes to the signs and wonders, that's something God sovereignly has to do. And, and, and I think it's an important distinction. And, and please don't take this as me trying to dismiss away signs and wonders. I believe God still does signs and wonders. What this is, is us not thinking, okay, what we need to do is do what we can do to make signs and wonders happening. Because when we do that, you know what it sets us up for? Deception. If we are pursuing signs and wonders, we are of that generation that Jesus says, it's an evil generation that seeks after a sign. We need to seek after Jesus, be diligent in our practice of worshiping him and pursuing him and being about his kingdom's business, and let the Lord bring signs and wonders falling as he sees fit. Now, I would say that one of the reasons we don't see more signs and wonders happening is because we don't actually, practice, we're not very diligent in seeking after God. I'm not talking about seeking after signs. I'm talking about seeking after God. There's a big difference. We also don't like this idea of this fear coming upon us. We want our experiences to be joyful and positive and yeah. We don't want to think lowly of ourselves. And because of that, we don't really see Jesus as he is. We, we, this is where we want to take a good clue from the early church. We want to be devoted as they were devoted. Not so that we can, oh, I want to experience what they experienced as much as I want, I want to follow the Jesus they followed. The Jesus of the Bible. I want to follow Jesus as they followed Jesus before all the traditions came in and before all the baggage was there. I just wanna I just wanna I just wanna seek him. I wanna know him. I wanna I wanna do that. I want us to do that together. So they were devoted to worship. That's what they were doing, okay? Now also though, notice verse 44, they were also devoted to one another. It says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now when it says they were together, you know what that means? They were in the same place. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. As I was kind of mentioning today, sometimes we wonder, gosh, I wonder why I feel so far from God and we never spend time with God's people. We don't make a concerted effort to say, okay, I want to be with these people. I want to be together with these people. Now, please don't get me wrong. Please don't, please don't think that I'm saying that God's only going to move when everyone is together in their church. And so maybe we need to have membership so we can know who's supposed to be there so that we can wait. Okay, make sure everyone's there and then we can have service. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, but I am talking about this desire that these guys were together. And it's interesting because when it talks about them being together, it says that they had all things in common. Now we have to understand what's happening here. 
Remember from uh, a couple weeks ago, why were these thousands of people in Jerusalem at the time when Pentecost happens? They're there for a festival, for a Jewish festival, Jewish feast. Now here's what we know. We know when there were these, these Jewish feast days, and people were coming from all around the Roman Empire to celebrate these feast days, the Jews had very clear, excuse me, clear and strict instructions about the kind of hospitality they needed to display. So you would, you would know there'd be thousands of people coming in, so almost every local Jew would open their house and have people come and stay with them. And a lot of times people they didn't even know, just total strangers that were Jews. And so they'd come in, and they would, they would be hospitable to these guys, and it was actually forbidden for them to ever charge for that. So it wasn't like you could say, okay, I'll have a, make my room, my house into a bed and breakfast because it'll help the people that are coming for, for worship. No, you, just, you didn't charge them, they just came in. This really kind of crazy hospitality was going on. It was part of the Jewish culture, and it happened several times a year when they would have these festivals. The bigger the festival, the more people would need to do this. What we see happening actually here in the early church was these people came for that festival. After the festival's over, they stayed. The ones that got converted, the ones that became Christians, they stayed in Jerusalem. And that hospitality was continuing. This is why they were doing what they were doing like physically, logistically. They needed to kind of, how, how do we feed these people? How do we keep these people together? Now, it's important to recognize as we talk about this, that this is not meant to be a model. We really don't see any other churches practicing this, this kind of communal living outside the Church of Jerusalem. And we also see, we'll see later on in the book of Acts, the church, the church in Jerusalem, these believers in Jerusalem, they eventually went broke and there was constantly needing to be offerings made to, from other churches to support the church in, in Jerusalem. And so, so this wasn't necessarily an ideal way to do it, but you've got to commend their hearts. Their hearts were just really, they are wanting to be really just having this loving hospitality towards each other. So the principle of saying, okay, look, we want to have that kind of hospitality. We want to actually be together and share, even if it costs us greatly, we want that, is something that God still commands us to do. Peter says, if you remember from 1 Peter chapter 4, it says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And notice the context? Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. It is hard because we are selfish people to always have people in our homes, to always be together with people. You think, oh, another meeting, or no, not another time, or I just want to be by myself. We, we all can do that. I can do that. But the reality is, that these guys were so devoted to one another, they were practicing this really loving kind of hospitality. Pretty radical hospitality. Now, one of the reasons as well, I should add, is that they, remember, the apostles who, who uh, the, or the 120 that were filled with God's Spirit on Pentecost, um, 10 days before they were filled with the Spirit, they saw Jesus ascend. And the angel said, this same Jesus will return in like manner. Remember that? So they're all thinking Jesus is going to come back any time. So that's probably one of the reasons they, said, they thought, okay, if he's going to come back in like manner, he's going to come back in Jerusalem. We want to be in Jerusalem when Jesus comes back. We don't want to go back to our home country. That was probably part of their motivation. Probably why the church in Jerusalem went broke eventually. Because they were all kind of waiting for that to happen. But the principle still remains. That we're, we're supposed to have this kind of devotion to each other. In fact, it says in verse 45, they sold their possessions and their goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. This is what I would call real generosity, gospel-centered generosity. 
Now, again, as I mentioned earlier, eventually the other churches would have to take offerings to help all the poor believers that were in Jerusalem. But when they did so, or when they were being encouraged to do so, Paul always pointed back to Jesus to motivate the generosity. This is in 2 Corinthians. You can read the whole context in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 9. But just let me read these verses. It says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now remember, when Paul's talking about the grace of God, he's not just talking about an unmerited favor or the fact that God accepts them by grace, but also grace is an empowering it's, it's a supernatural empowering that God gives them the ability to do something that reflects the character of God. So grace is, yes, an unmerited gift, but it's also a supernatural enabling. Does that make sense? Okay. So he's talking about the grace of giving here. Make you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, for I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of of the ministering to the saints. There's that word fellowship, that's sharing. We have the, sh- the same life in Christ, so we want to share our resources with brothers and sisters in Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty, uh, that you through his poverty might become rich. In other words, we don't want you just to be generous, we want you generous to be motivated by the gospel. We want it to be a gospel-centered Generosity. That's what we're seeing happening in this early church. They were devoted to each other. Now, please don't think that I'm just saying this because I think the first applic- the only application of the first application is tithing. Okay? That's not my motivation here. It's a good thing to do. It's a good place to start. But I am talking about us being generous to each other. Us helping one another. That's what I'm talking about. Now, almost done. Verse 46. It says, so they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor notice with all the people and the Lord out of the church daily, those who are being saved. Now, I want you to notice these different locations because to me, this really communicates that the early church wasn't just devoted to worship. They weren't just devoted to one another, but they were devoted to their community. Listen, when it, says, when it says that they continued daily in the temple, think about this, and we'll see this in the book of Acts. Where were they going to pray? They were going to the temple to pray. I want you to think about this for a second. These people, many of these 3,000, they're going to the temple to pray. This is a temple full of Jewish people who killed their Messiah weeks before. This is a temple full of Jewish people. Of course, they're Jews as well. Who, who had rejected the Messiah. Yeah, 3,000 people got saved on Pentecost, but there are thousands of more who said, whatever, you guys are nuts. And they're going to that place to pray. In other words, they're going to go pray to the, the God of the Bible. They're going to go pray to Yahweh with people who think they're nuts, with people who have rejected their Messiah. Now, this is really challenging for me. And I'll tell you, when I was wrestling with this, thinking about this, I thought, okay, Lord, what's the application to us? Because as we're going to see soon when we go through to Peter on on Sunday mornings, God obviously does not want us to have fellowship with false teachers, does it? Amen. I knew Craig would like that. (laughs) That was predictable, wasn't it? (laughs) Of course. So, so how do we deal with this? These guys were hanging out with people 
who were worshiping uh, the God of the Bible in a sense, or they were, were attempting to worship the God of the Bible, but yet they rejected the Messiah, the only way they could actually be right with God. How do we, how do, we do this? Well, it, to me, it at least has an application in the idea that we will, are willing to pray with people who say they believe in Jesus, even if they're into things that we know really aren't good. I'm not saying publicly, one of the things that we don't do, one of the things we haven't done, is publicly done stuff with other churches that we knew were dodgy. We just don't do that. But you know what? Maybe we need to be willing to, if you have a neighbor that goes to church that you know is kind of dodgy, be willing to talk with them, fellowship with them, pray with them, as a way also to encourage them to know the Jesus of the Bible, not just the Jesus of their own understanding. There's at least maybe a willingness there to sort of build bridges with people. Will and I were talking about, he's, he's been, had a chance to actually, he said for the first time, build a friendship with a Muslim guy. I think, praise God for that. It's, it's a great thing. And he's really sharing with this guy. And they're, they're becoming friends. And he's wanting to share the gospel with this guy. It's not just preaching at him. He's sharing with him. There's at least that. that. A lot of religious people, guys, we have at least a common ground. Sometimes it's only a common morality. But there's a bridge there that we can cross for the gospel in friendship. Uh, to me, at least has that. Again, I'm not talking about ecumenicalism or all roads lead to God and that kind of nonsense. I'm just saying us building bridges with people for the gospel, okay? But also notice what it says. It says they also went uh, breaking bread from house to house. And this is probably, again, talking about this communal meal. But house to house, what is this referring to? Now, don't forget, this 3,120 people, okay? How would they do church? There wasn't like cathedrals built in that day. There was probably some place near the temple where maybe they could go when the rest of the people weren't worshiping and they could have, you know, they could worship Jesus there, you know, potentially. But probably what had to happen was this 3,120 people had to break up in groups and meet in different houses all during the week. And so I was talking about house to house. What you had was basically these apostles going from house to house sharing the word and leading the worship in this house and in this house. I mean, I can imagine the schedule these guys had, you know? It must have been intense, you know? I'm dying for just two services on a Sunday. These guys were doing like probably 15 services in a week, kind of going around leading these house churches or something. But they were going around and they were committed to do this house to house. And I can even imagine this sort of, uh, and again, I, I don't have any sort of proof text for this, but I, I, this is my imagination here, but I imagine seeing what we see about how their attitudes were towards each other, this kind of, this webbing of people where this person who lived in this section of Jerusalem, these hundred people, they gathered together and they were always together as many times in their days as they could, doing life together, seeking God together, but then someone would break off eventually and kind of go visit someone else in that house church on that day of the week when they could. And there was just this constant kind of interweaving of relationships of all these people because they were so committed to be with one another. And in doing so, what kind of a witness was that to the community? I mean, seriously, can you imagine if, can you seriously, imagine if every household and servants church hosted a house group? No, I'm serious. I'm not saying this is our goal or our vision or anything. I'm just saying, I mean, think about what that would happen. And, and, and that we were committed to, to, to one another so that every day there was something going on in someone's house and different people were at di- or several people's houses and there's always something going on. And the neighbors would say, what is the deal? Your house is always busy like three days a week. What's going on there? And you could say, well, we love Jesus and we just want to hang out. 
Now again, I'm not saying this is the way that it has to be. I'm not, don't, please don't do that. I'm not putting a trip on anybody. I know our culture is different. Our lifestyle is a little bit different. So I'm not trying to put any kind of guilt trip on anybody. But you can imagine how this would impact the community when it happened. You can imagine. But also listen, it says, they ate their food with gladness, simplicity of heart. These guys were just really content with what they had, celebrating Jesus. It says they were praising God. So there's a, there a, uh, just an open, there's a joy there uh, among these people. And it says, notice, having favor with all the people. Now, Luke uses this word for people that's laos in the Greek. It's not this other word, demos, which demos has to, has to do with like uh, the people from your group. Like we get the word demographics from that, okay? Laos has to do with people in general. So this is definitely speaking of the general populace. They were in favor of the general populace. In other words, even though people thought, you, you know, that Jesus stuff is a bit whacked, but you guys... You do something pretty radical. In fact, one biblical scholar says the way Luke describes early church would, for the educated Greek, they would have saw this, this is the ideal Greek society realized. And so people would have saw the way they're living and gone, that's the way everyone's supposed to live. But also listen, as they were doing all this, what does the Bible say? And the Lord added to the church daily those being saved. The Lord added This is why one of the things that's on my heart really heavy as a pastor is to make sure that we are not looking to add people to our church. We're wanting to see the Lord add people to our church who are being saved. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that we want to be a church that's hospitable and inviting. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we're not interested in bums in the seats. (laughs) We're interested in souls in heaven. We're interested in disciples becoming real disciples. That's not an anti-numbers thing either. I, I, I pray we, we multiply greatly numerically, but I pray it's through people actually, it's the Lord adding people being saved, not just people kind of coming and saying, oh, the coffee's really good. It's, it, it's really, I, I think, something that we, we desire. God, we want to be devoted to you, devoted to one another, and devoted to our communities in such a way that it's your pleasure to bring people to us. I think we're, we're seeing that a little bit. I, I want to give glory to God because I think we're seeing that a little bit. But I wonder if we can just you know, say, Lord, we want to be even more devoted to you. 